Hello and welcome back to What's Occurring. It is episode two and again I am joined by a new co-host. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Bella. You, you're very excited to be here, aren't you? I'm so excited. I'm not I've been buzzing since either. you asked me. <laughs> yeah, I have all of my notes prepared, you know, I'm ready for this. When I say Bella's excited, I mean she literally has a book of notes. I turn up with like, <laughs> a bit of A5 paper and she has a book. Mm-hmm. And she sees... It's, it's the same book I used to use for our radio shows. Yeah, back in the day, me and Bella used to used to present together, didn't we? So I thought it'd be good yeah. to have you back on the show to go through all of this week's news and, to be honest, mainly sport. Yes. It has been There's an amazing a, week. a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, shall we start with the Olympics? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my God. Can we start with Tom Daly? I, Did you... Oh, I, I knew you can't. would love it. I just knew it. It's just, it's so lovely to see him. And obviously, is it Matty Lee, his partner, the yeah. other diver? He's from Leeds as well, so, you know, keeping it local. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was so lovely to see, obviously, them win gold for the for the first time. And as well, hearing about how his husband and son were so proud of him. And it's just a really lovely, lovely thought. Yeah, for those who don't know, Tom Daly won bronze in London, bronze in Rio, despite winning loads of world championships in between. And it, it's only now that he's won the gold, even though he's had time out, he's obviously had the coronavirus to deal with, he's had a son, mm. he's got married. Like, in all that time, wasn't he like... I think he was 14 when he went to his first Olympics in Beijing. It's, yeah. It is, it is an incredible story. It is amazing. And as well, you could see... Um, like when they showed, you know, the, when they gave the medals out, he was so overwhelmed and so happy and you he just... crying. Yeah, you can't help but feel sweet. proud. It is yeah, one of those moments. Lovely. I don't normally get, like, emotional about sport or anything. But even Oh, neither. Like, <laughs> but it was, like, to see him... Like, because he's... Like, everyone's grown up watching him. Yeah. To see him finally get that medal was very sweet. But then, of course, plenty of other medals. It was Magic Monday, as they're now calling it. It was Magic Monday. Three mon- three Mondays? Three medals. <laughs> <laughs> three gold on medals. On the Monday. Um, on yeah. that Monday. So you had Adam Peaty in the best breaststroke, which, to be honest, I think everyone was expecting, but what It was athlete. amazing to watch. Oh, my God. He's just so far ahead of everyone else. I, I'm convinced he's not human. That is amazing. <laughs> he is... It's unbelievable. And he's he's set like what? How many world records now? Or he's it's, consistently held. It's ridiculous. What I, I saw this morning, he has five of the six fastest uh hundred metre breaststroke times ever. So he's not only broken the world wow. record once, he's effectively broken it like five times. Oh my gosh. It's like well, it's, it's, it's mad to think because whenever I think of breaststroke I just think of you know when you're in the swimming pool at the gym and you see all the you know mums and stuff doing breaststroke keeping their head above the water <laughs> having a chat and then you see him doing it in the Olympics and you're like oh wow <laughs> okay a bit different, bit different. Um, yeah the other gold yesterday came from mountain biking which I have to say looked very dangerous yeah well it was uh, Tom Peacock who won it? Good. 
Good knowledge. Good um, knowledge. Yeah. Um, and so about two months prior, um, whilst training, he'd broken his collarbone. And so to then recover from that and go on and win gold in the Olympics is amazing. Yeah. Then, of course, in the swimming, we had a big triumph again overnight because uh, Britain came first and second, a 1-2, in the same race for the first time ever since 1908, which I have to say is impressive. Over over 100 years, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, so... Pretty uh, good from awesome. <laughs> let me just... Um, no, that is... It's, it's a good sign, though, because I think a lot of people came into this Olympics with not a lot of hope for Britain. Maybe we peaked in London and then even we'd gone even further in Rio and, you know, Tom Dean comes in and gets his gets his gold medal. Like, it's, it just wasn't expected. There's a lot. We could do really well here. Yeah, I think so far, like, this year, we've done all right in sport. Obviously, England in the World Cup, that was... The year recently. Pretty impressive. No. This is Bella's Shit, football yeah. knowledge. <laughs> it's quite cute, really, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> can we can we redo that bit? Can we redo no, that? No, we're not. We're going to carry on. Because Judel <laughs> anyway. just shouted me. Oh, she's not, no, a boyfriend I'm going to get so much just, slander for this that. This is all staying in, you realise. Right, moving on. <laughs> so, GB are oh, going to do better than expected, is my prediction. Um Overnight. Well, I think if we carry on the streak, we could do well in the World Cup. There we go. Brought it back. Saved it. There we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't a football podcast. Not yet. Back, Not yet. Back to the Olympics, which we're actually talking about, Bella. All right. Sorry, Tom. God. <laughs> um, overnight, Naomi Osaka, the Japanese tennis player who lit the Olympic torch at the opening ceremony, got knocked out in mm. a big surprise. And... Um, Andy Murray is still doing very well in the doubles. He pulled out the singles in the tennis, but um, no, he's doing very well as well. So there's another potential goal there. Yeah, I, I just think we're doing slow and steady wins the race. I think we're doing really well so far. And honestly, like you can never watch all of the um, all of the sports in the Olympics, but being able to see the highlights and seeing what's going on. You do feel quite proud knowing that, like, they're over in Tokyo representing the country and they're, like, you know, yeah. putting all their effort in and, and doing as well as they can and they're doing, like, it's paying off. It really is. And I think, um, especially around this Games, because there was a lot of talk about whether it should even have gone ahead with yeah. the virus. And I think virus rates in Tokyo is, I think Tokyo is in a state of emergency because the virus levels are so high. It's not popular there. People aren't going out and supporting it. There's no spectators yeah. anyway. Do you think it should have even have gone ahead? Like, um, uh, I'm a bit off in arms about it because on the one hand, I think it is quite risky. You know, obviously, COVID is still a really big issue, especially if they're in a state of emergency that like you don't want to push it too much. But then at the same time, I think after last year, you know, everything got cancelled. We kind of need a bit of a morale boost. And I think so far Team GB, Team GB are providing that. Yeah. And I think it is as well, obviously restrictions have been like massively decreased in the UK. And so it's nice to be able to, you know, maybe go to the pub and watch some of the Olympics and, and enjoy you know, it. it. It creates a conversation as well that's not surrounding COVID. So it's a quite 
quite a nice refreshing change there's nothing wrong with having conversations about covid we're gonna have one later on so don't 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 say that the entire <laughs> last podcast is about that i'm i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it it's just a nice no, it's change it's from a it welcome break um that yeah, said we are going to move on now and we are going to talk okay. about the um prince harry because he has yes. announced he is going to write a book and there's rumors that there's going to be more than one book and i haven't got the exact words in front of me but it talk, mm. talking about how he's not writing it as a prince, he's writing it as a man he's become. Well, oh, sounds honestly, dangerous to me. There are a lot of mixed opinions surrounding Prince Harry, but personally, I absolutely adore him. I think the way he stood his ground for his family is admirable, and he's been through a lot, especially you know with his mother, Princess Diana, and then his portrayal within the media. But I, I just... I have a lot of respect for him, and I know some people don't, but I do really... I love him. I think he's great. <laughs> See, I am really torn on this especially. I think yeah. he has the right to move away and to protect his family and to do all of those things, but there is a line, and he is crossing it. I'm sorry, like you're welcome to move away and retire and step out of the public eye and protect yourself, but do that don't move out of the public eye in one country go to another and then undermine your family because they haven't treated you well yet there's there's issues there there's big issues but come on there's better ways to Um, resolve them go on well i don't know tackling this from a media student perspective um with the whole moving out of the public eye it wasn't that they necessarily wanted you know a quiet life away from the spotlight it was more that they wanted to control what was being said about them within the media. And we all know the British press is relentless. And so by moving away and then having his own, like, book and obviously the Oprah interview, they're then able to construct their own, like, how they want other people to see them rather than what, you know, the Daily Mail, the Guardian, the Telegraph, what all of those are saying about them. It's true. I, I will agree with you there. But do you not think it's a bit classless to go on Oprah and start slagging off your dad? Like, yes, there's clearly issues there, and I'm not saying there's no fault. But come on, there's better ways to sort that out. I don't know. As much as I think maybe it should have been handled more personally, like talk to his family first, I quite like the drama surrounding it. You know, <laughs> I think... True. Love a good bit of gossip within the media, especially from one of the most famous families in the world. You know, every family of its own has its own ups and downs and drama. I know my family's got plenty, but being able to see it from the royal family, some people might argue that it makes him even more relatable. It's true. It is box office. I... Mm. Uh, going back to the book then, what do you yes. think could come out of that? Do you, reckon that? do you reckon the damage has already been done with the Oprah interview or do you think there's more to come? Honestly, what I'm hoping from this book isn't necessarily the drama or, you know, the beef that he has with his family almost. I'm, I mean, this is wishful thinking, I'm sure, but I'm quite hoping that he'll focus more on his family and, you know, obviously it was a bit like a fairy tale when um, he met Megan and they 
fell in love. And so I'd quite like to hear more about that. And obviously they've got, what, two children now? Yeah. It'd be nice to see, because we've seen William from a like father figure point, but we've not really seen much of that from Harry. So it'd be quite nice to see what that's like for him. It's but true. that's, you know, wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking. What um what's for what's for certain is that when it comes out, it will be making headlines in twenty twenty two. Well, it's already making headlines. To be fair, from yeah. two although everyone's taking different approaches towards it. So uh, the magazine Elle, for example, um, I read an article that they'd written about it, and it was very much here are the facts. Here's what's been said. Like you know, Harry stated that uh, the royal family weren't blindsided. They knew that it was coming. And, um, like, there we go, it's going to come out in 2022. Whereas the Daily Mail, on the other hand, again, they seem to be giving the facts, but they said that the uh, royal family were unaware of his Megxit memoir. Yeah. And, as we know, the whole Megxit ordeal has been brought up in the media plenty of times. But it will be interesting to see how, you know, different newspapers and different uh, media organisations focus on the topic and how they portray him within the media after the release of the book. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on again, and briefly, we are going to talk about COVID, because Absolutely. it's good news. The cases are yes. falling. There's been six days Ugh. of continuous falling cases. Um, we're now down to 25,000 cases a day, where the government was predicting, or the government scientists, rather, predicting 100,000 cases a day by, by now. I mean... It's it's good news, but can we relax yet? Um, I don't know. I think the world as a whole can't necessarily relax yet because it still is a huge deal that everywhere it's still affecting different countries. But the UK itself, I think, I think now's the time if you want to go to the pub and see your mates. The weather's still well. The weather was still nice. <laughs> You, you know, now's the time to do it. And I think, I know I've been clubbing this yeah, past we week since things were open. Yeah, we went clubbing together. We went clubbing on Friday night. And I have to say, before I went, I was a little bit worried about yeah. catching something. But we're here, it's Tuesday morning. We're both clear, so is everyone else. COVID we negative. Went. We yeah. all had to have tests before we went. We're all safe. And as far as I know, nobody I know who went to the club that night has had a positive test no neither do i and i think like obviously um mental health has been on a rapid decline during lockdown and being like confined to one space not being able to see other people has really you know decreased morale and people haven't been feeling great but now that clubs are open we face the whole different issue of well people are anxious to go in in case they catch something yeah but i think we're living proof that you know, although you do have those anxieties, it is possible to go and come out COVID-free. <laughs> no, you have to be careful, be vigilant, but yeah, clearly it can be okay. And I, I'm not one to downplay the virus. I've had it twice. It's not nice, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I think I said last week there has to come a point where you start to unlock and do these things and maybe take more risks if you want to. And I think we're reaching that point, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about using, you know, your common sense. If you're in a really crowded area and you feel unsafe, pop a mask on. Yeah. But if you're out, like, 
in open air, not that many people around. Don't wear it if you don't want to. It's one of these. I think we're going to have to wait and see for a few weeks because obviously things only opened up last Monday. Give mm. it another couple of weeks and watch what happens then. Because I was on the train yesterday, came home, and yeah, there was a lot of people not wearing masks, which they are now allowed yeah. to do. But it would be interesting to see how that kind of change in behaviour and just everything just generally being more busy um, impacts the case numbers. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, people have got to be sensible and that's all that you can really ask for. Yeah. Um, right, I want to move on again now. This week I have been chatting to Ian Dale, the author of many, 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 many books, uh, as well as <laughs> on top of being a full-time radio presenter and political commentator on Breakfast Telly, amongst many things. Uh, he's a very busy man, but he took out some time to talk to me about his books, uh, what he likes to read on holiday, and um, what he's going to be up to this summer. So let's have a listen. Ian Dale, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, as an author and um, someone who's also been a publisher, why is it that in such a busy world where nobody has any time, people still make time to sit down and read a book? That's a really good question, actually, because it is quite incongruous, isn't it, when we're told that we all have the attention span of a flea, and yet reading has actually is on the increase. Book sales are up, believe it or not, during the pandemic, I'm told. Um, so, But I, I think that's a really good thing, because if all we do is react to sort of tweets or Facebook messages or Instagram or whatever, it, it's not very wholesome is it i mean what what do you get out of all of those you you don't get the same thing that you can get from books um i mean books depending on what kind they are if you read novels i mean you just float away on your imagination don't you you don't do that in any form of social media social media just makes you angry okay i'm sure there are some books <laughs> that can make people angry as well um but the, the variety of literature out there is is so massive and i just I'm so glad that younger people in particular, I think, are, are still reading books because I think we all imagined a time when people just wouldn't do that anymore. And you look at how Kindle sales have actually uh, plateaued. Uh, people are going back to the physical book. They want to actually hold a book in their hands. I mean, I've got a Kindle, but I can't remember the last time I used it. I suppose if I go abroad, I might use it on holiday. But there's nothing like holding a book and reading it in the traditional manner. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of those where you really don't think about it uh, in the same way, like an ebook or, you know, even an audiobook. It's just not the same. It's like looking back on that kind of. Well, that, like, that is true. But audiobooks, bizarrely, have achieved a real renaissance over the last few years. And I know so many people have said to me that they bought the audiobook of the prime, my books, The Prime Minister, but why can't we all just get along? Um, and, and they might have bought the physical book as well, but they, they really enjoy audiobooks. It's like podcasts like this um, are incredibly popular now, whereas 10 years ago, we thought podcasts had sort of become rather old fashioned, but they, they've achieved a re renaissance because people like listening to things it's Thank true God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um what do you like to read if you go on holiday or you know if you, you're a hard-working man so i don't know if you ever get a proper holiday but if you get a moment well, that, to spare. That, 
Yeah, um, I do read a lot on holiday, it has to be said, but my problem is that I'm usually so knackered that I fall asleep within about three pages. Like in, <laughs> in my normal day, the, the only time I ever read is when I go to bed. And I sort of, I, I read in a very weird way. I, I don't want, wish you to imagine me in bed. But <laughs> um, I, I'm sort of like on my side and I'm, I've got my head on the pillow and I'm holding the book up. And I literally go to bed after about three, I go to sleep after about three pages. And then my partner will bring in the dogs because they sleep on the bed at about three o'clock in the morning and will often find me still holding the book with the light on, but to <laughs> sleep. So it takes me sometimes quite a long time to read a book. Um, what do I read? I don't read fiction much anymore. It's very rare that I read a novel. I tend to concentrate on political autobiographies or diaries. I love diaries um, or football books. Those are my two great loves. I don't really read intellectual books. I don't read books, all the sort of nudge books, all of those sort of um, yeah. intellectual wankery. I just can't be bothered with. <laughs> The, well, listeners, an insight into Ian Dale's bedroom there. But um, if you had to recommend a book for our listeners this summer, what would you go for? Well, apart from my own, obviously. Apart from um, your own. What would I go for? I'm reading, I'm just finishing off Alan Duncan's diaries at the moment, which I won't say the greatest political diaries ever written, but they give you a really good insight into what it's like to be a junior minister. He was sort of deputy foreign secretary for four or five years and um very entertaining quite bitchy in many ways and he's got all the all the different things that you want from a diary my favorite diaries are alastair campbell's and i published four volumes of his diaries uh, there are eight altogether, and i've read every single one and they're very long books um and you get a very different impression of alastair campbell reading his diaries from what you see on the television um he's actually quite a vulnerable person in many ways which he just he, he comes across as this sort of real macho figure um but oh god they're so emotional so um i'd say though any I mean, i'm not going to say necessarily start off at the beginning of his diaries it doesn't really matter where you start but um they are a fantastic read you know it's funny you say that because i'm reading the most recent one now and i've not read any of the others i just started there and i agree for such a quite an angry man some would say you know mm. this big figure to um he's very emotional and very open about his personal struggles so yeah I would throw in my lot with that one as well and agree uh I want to move on now to some more political matters and uh the unlocking that's been going on uh we're in the middle of the so-called pandemic. uh you've been quite open about the um the fact that you think people should be wearing masks people should be cautious I think you even even called an MP irresponsible for um, saying she wasn't going to wear a mask. Uh, why is that? Well, I, I've never, I, I don't like government taking control of things. I, I've always been somebody who believes that people are better able to make their own decisions rather than necessarily dictate, be dictated to by governments. But in a pandemic, all that has to go out the window for a bit. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, but I, I think my views on masks have been slightly misrepresented because of that interview with that Tory MP that you talk about, Miriam Cates. Um, yeah. She, her basic point was that people have a human right to see her face, and that's why she <laughs> wouldn't be wearing a mask anymore. Oh dear. And I thought, well, that is utterly ridiculous. 
Now, I, I actually agreed with the Prime Minister removing the mandatory status of mask wearing on July the 19th. But the clip that LBC put out from that interview was the one where I accused her of being, I think, stupid, irresponsible and dangerous, or were some of the words I used. Because I do think it is, it is irresponsible if you don't wear a mask at the moment. Not, not everywhere. I think we, we, we've all moderated what we do. Um, but I will still wear a mask if I'm on public transport, if, if I'm in a confined area, in a small shop, for example, if I'm in a taxi, um, if I'm in a train carriage and there's no one else there, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. But I, I make these decisions sort of through, I think, I mean, they're logical. But to just say that you're never going to wear a mask again, I think is thoroughly irresponsible. Um, I, at some point, all of the restrictions have got to come to an end. We would, all, we would all choose our own dates. Um, whether July the 19th was the right date, I don't know. It could have been August the 3rd, it could be September the 3rd, or it could have been June the 21st. But the fact is we pay politicians to make these decisions on our behalf. And if they get them right, we re-elect them. If they consistently get them wrong, we chuck them out and elect a new government. That's what democracy is all about. Yeah, it's true. Um, do you think COVID and the unlocking and the mask and everything is becoming a new culture war? you know, on the kind of Brexit level of things? Well, I'm never, I, I never wanted to use this phrase cultural. I remember about a year ago, I was on the television with Yasmin Albayabrown. I don't know what we were talking about. She mentioned this phrase. And I said, you know, Yasmin, the more you mention it, the more likely you make it, the, the more likely you make it to happen. Um, but a, a so-called culture war I don't, I'm not even sure what the phrase really means, because often it just means the difference between left and right. Things that we would have just said were left and right back in the 1980s have now somehow been turned a culture war. Oh, it's sort of libertarian versus authoritarian. Um, and and anyone can create division and purposely create division. And there are politicians, obviously, that do that on the left and the right. Um, I, I've never been somebody who does that. I, I, I My day job is as a... Um, talk show host on LBC but I don't sit there trying to create an incendiary argument in fact it's quite the reverse often I want to try and bring people together not always possible but I think the more that politicians and people in the media go out of their way to create division I, I think that is a really dangerous thing for our society and we are seeing a bit more of that at the moment you're right yeah you wrote a book on this why can't we all just get along and at the end of the book, you give a big list of potential solutions. But do you think, like, realistically, that we can bring people together more and that these divisions can be resolved better than um, they currently are and are being dealt with better than they currently are? Well, all you can do is try. I mean, that's, that's all any of us can do. Uh, all we can do is try to behave better, to moderate our own behaviour and be nicer to each other. I know that sounds very sort of kumbaya and motherhood and apple pie, <laughs> but there is a point to it because if you feel, for example, on social media that you are becoming a different person to what you really are, and I certainly felt that a couple of years ago, where if somebody lied about me on Twitter or, or said something that was just plain wrong, I, I would kind of feel the sap rising and I would sort of bash out a tweet which would have been very aggressive and I, I probably still do that sometimes but I, I know I do it less now than I used to. Um, somebody once said um, that on the radio Ian Dale is, a, is all nice 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 but on Twitter he's an absolute beast and they were right uh, and that was part <laughs> of the reason for writing the book to be honest because I, I thought well 
I know what I mean, I, I, I'm over 50 years old. I know what my personality is. I know um, what my what my real personality is. I don't try and put on a different personality when I'm on the radio. But on Twitter, for some reason, and I still don't quite understand why, I I would adopt this persona, and it wasn't deliberate. I just I just found myself being permanently angry, and I'm not really an angry person particularly. Um, so I've I've tried to instead of calling someone a twat on Twitter, I call them a muppet. Yeah, it gets to you in the end. I agree, if, especially if you spend too much time on there. Uh, yeah. I want to. I want to move on to another one of your books now, The Prime Ministers. And what do you think makes a good Prime Minister, having read about and um, um, written this book about them all? Well, I, I didn't write the essay, all the essays. I wrote the one on Boris Johnson. 54 other people wrote, wrote the others. But it was quite interesting to, when doing the editing process, seeing all the different themes that emerged. Um, being lucky, I think, is probably the biggest <laughs> asset that any prime minister can have, being in the right place at the right time. And there are some prime ministers that on paper ought to have been really good at it, but they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Jim Callaghan, for example, who was prime minister before Margaret Thatcher, was a, a good example. He'd been chancellor, home secretary, foreign secretary. He had all the attributes to be a really good prime minister. But events just dictated that he was on a losing wicket right from the start. He was at the fag end of a of Harold Wilson, who had been prime minister for six years in the 60s and then another two years in the 70s. Uh, and whenever you are a prime minister taking over from a long term prime minister like John Major took over from Margaret Thatcher, Gordon Brown took over from Tony Blair, you, you're, you're never going to compare, I'm afraid. Gordon Brown ought to have been a really good prime minister, but he wasn't. I mean, you could say he was in the right place at the right time with the financial crisis, which I think in retrospect, he will be seen as handling much better than maybe people thought at the time. Um, but he just didn't have a lot of the attributes that you need. One thing that you need is not to be a control freak. And Gordon Brown was an ultimate control freak who couldn't make decisions. Theresa May was exactly the same. They both accrued power into Downing Street, but you could never get decisions out of them. And um, yeah. I think it, Boris Johnson is a bad prime minister in many ways. But one of the good things about him is that he's not a details person. He might have <laughs> nothing to say, but I think a prime minister needs to sort of sit on top of the pyramid and direct things and give the cabinet ministers their marching orders and just let them get on with it. Uh, and I think he does that more than possibly most recent prime ministers have done. I think you've got to have a broad canvas as a prime minister and not get obsessed by the detail, not try to control everything through number 10. Yeah, I think in a way Boris Johnson is an exceptional prime minister, not in like not in the sense of he's an amazing prime minister, but uh, he's very different to all the others. Like you're saying about um, Jim Callaghan and hanging on at the end of Gordon Brown somewhat as well. Boris Johnson's taken over from David Cameron and Theresa May and has built on that majority. He's, you know, he seems to be unpopular amongst, you know, the, me the media class, if you like, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. But... Uh, still amongst the country, very, very popular, despite the crisis that we've just been through. Yeah, and, and the opposition never really 
understand that. They've never understood. It's just like people underestimated George W. Bush all the time, thought he was stupid. They did, the left do exactly the same thing with Boris Johnson. They did when he was mayor of London. Ken Livingstone never got Boris's appeal. Westminster journalists, the same. They don't see what his appeal is outside the M25 or just walk down a street with him and you can see his appeal. People want selfies with him. He, he's got it, whatever it is. Um, so, and, and that is a real, really big thing for a prime minister. Yeah. Where does he rank amongst all the prime ministers that there's ever been? It's far too early to say. I mean, I know that's <laughs> the cop out of an answer. When he became prime minister, I thought he would either be a brilliant prime minister or a terrible prime minister. Um, in the chapter in the book, um, I think I've been overly kind to him in many ways. Um, I, I think there are aspects of the COVID crisis that he's handled okay, but I would say the majority of things have not been handled well from Downing Street and the buck does stop with him. So I think if, if, you were to, if his premiership was to end today, he would certainly be in the bottom half of the 55. Mm. That's very interesting to know. Uh, now, on to another book you've written recently, because um, you're a very busy man. Um, you've written a book of political counterfactuals um, with others. And I have come up with one of my own that I'd, I'd like your opinion on. Do you think you could write one where football comes home, West Ham win the Premier League, and we top the medal table in the Olympics? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. The, the, the secret of a good counterfactual is it has to be based on something that really is realistic that you could you could imagine happening. Um, I mean, you can write all sorts of things in. And in football could never come fantasy. home. Well, football could come home, but West Ham. I don't think. I think most people consider it complete fiction that they could ever win the Champions League. <laughs> Who knows? I hope I have to eat my words, but. Uh, uh, and we'll, we'll never top the Olympic middle, medals table because America always does and always will. Um, well, I say that, <laughs> I suppose China could have some uh, influence on that in the future. Um, I, we certainly punch above our weight in the Olympics. But no, I, I, I think uh, the chapter I've written in the book is the title chapter about Priti Patel becoming prime minister. Now, you'd have to say that's an unlikely thing to happen. But I, I have put forward circumstances where it is possible and, and most people, well, certainly the feedback I've had from it so far is that people, um, I mean, they found it very funny in, in some ways, horrifying in other ways, but it, it is a realistic scenario. Hmm. I'm not sure I like your negativity about West Ham and the Olympics, but I, <laughs> I will accept it. Um, Ian Dale, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers. That was Ian Dale there, whose book, Prime Minister Pretty and Other Things That Never Happened, is out today. Bella, what do you think of that idea? Oh, thank God it's never happened. Thank <laughs> great. Don't get me wrong. I am, you know, feminist. I'm all for female empowerment. I love seeing women be part of politics. And if Pretty Patel did become PM, I think she'd do a really good job and she'd know get done everything that she'd um like set forward kind of thing she'd achieve everything that she wanted to uh on the other hand i would hate everything that she did <laughs> and the thought of her being prime minister kind of makes my skin crawl people so, moan about boris not Johnson, a huge fan of the can idea you imagine can you imagine she she is the definition of a weapon 
I'm terrified <laughs> oh by it. Oh my god, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I, it would be dangerous. But no, um, it, I was talking to you in there about books and summer reading. The reason I had you on this week, Bella, is because I know you are <laughs> a bit of a book freak. So I am a bit of a book freak. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Because I feel like you've probably got some better ideas. Okay, than I me. do. <laughs> well, um, so I have kind of two recommendations. So I'll start with the first one, which is for people who are more into advanced reading. Advanced like, reading. Rather than, you know, an, an easy read. This book is difficult, right? So... It's originally called La Disparition by Georges Perec, and it's a French book. Um, I'm currently reading the English translation, which is translated to A Void. That's a cop-out. Which was, ah, no, you'll you'll hear why in a second. And it was translated by uh, Gilbert Adair. Um, But so both the French and English versions are uh, full, you know, like, what, 200 and... 80 odd pages um written without the letter e there is no there are no e's in the book whatsoever it is it's crazy it's it's a um honestly not too sure what is this from what i found it's so it's it's a book without letter in it so in so if you think about, you know, the words in English that we have, a lot of them have E's in them. Then no. if you think about French, well, if you think about French, even more words have E's in them. So <laughs> how, I honestly don't know how he's pulled it off. Georges Perec, Georges Perec, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his name quite, but, you know, we'll go with it. So he was um, like a member of a literature group and, you know, he liked doing all these crazy ideas and decided to write a full novel without letter E. So I highly recommend that to anyone who wants to, you know, challenge themselves because it is a very difficult read. Um, But for someone who's looking for, you know, something a bit easier, but still really entertaining, uh, anything by Sally Rooney. How did I know you were going to say that? Because, oh, I love her so much. (laughs) So, obviously, like, you know, normal people that came out on BBC Three, um, that was out over lockdown. Everyone loved it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, (laughs) The book, I, so, um, the reason I got the book was because one of my uh, best friends who lives on the opposite side of the world, in Australia, we decided to do a book exchange for Christmas. Um, so I gave her Adam Kay's It's Going to Hurt, which is also a very good book. That. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, amazing book. Um, but she sent me Normal People by Sally Rooney and read it, absolutely loved it. I literally cried when I finished it because I wanted to read it over again. Very sad, I know. Um, and then I also didn't realise that I had a book, another book by Sally Rooney that I'd bought a year prior um, while I was on holiday in New York, I'd bought a book for the flight home and it was that. And so I read that recently, absolutely loved it, sent it over to my mate who's at uni in Oxford. She read it in like six hours and she texted me afterwards and she was like, I'm drunk and I'm crying, but oh my God, that book was amazing. So I think we're getting a bit more also... of an insight into Bella's life here. Than <laughs> yeah, but honestly, it's... 
Sally Rooney, she's a wonderful author. She's also got um, another book that was released in 2020 called Two Stories and a book being released this year called Beautiful World, Where Are You? Recommend her. Have you finished that Sally Rooney promotional (laughs) advert? she paying more than I am or something? Um, no. She, she, I would promote her for free any day of the week. I would shout her name from the rooftops. She's okay. amazing. Right. Well, I'm going to give my cheeky plug now. And this is clever. Because <laughs> I'm going to recommend Lobby Life by Carol Walker, which I've been reading this last week. Mm. which is in itself a very interesting read. It's all about being a journalist in Westminster and what access you have to the Prime Minister. And when I say access to the Prime Minister, like, so there's days where they'll go, if, if the Prime Minister's on a foreign trip, they'll share a plane, they'll go drinking with them, they'll chat to them about their family and stuff like that. So there's loads of great little stories about stuff like that and a lot of journalists getting drunk and doing silly things i can i can kind of see you doing that in the future time i can't lie no. i feel like you'd be very good at that, that kind of job but no it's about it's a history of that but also most importantly i'm speaking to carol walker about mm. said book next week on the podcast ah very nice very yeah. smooth, smooth you that, uh, slipped that right in there but no seriously mm, good book very good <laughs> uh, we're going to go back to the sport now and i want to talk about cricket which I can't imagine you are an expert on. Yeah, um, I mean, we've already, you know, witnessed my blunder towards football and that <laughs> I'm somewhat interested in. Cricket, I, um, my only experience with cricket really is I went camping with my family once and we played cricket, but we didn't have the little wicket, is it? The bit on the top, yeah. what's the? Yeah, bales. Yeah, we used a wine glass instead, a plastic wine glass. And um, that's all I know about cricket, that you can't use a wine glass because it it's, doesn't work. Okay. It. And you can't hit the thing with the ball or the bat and they wear white. Just stop talking. There we go. Just stop talking. Okay. <laughs> uh, the reason I want to talk about, about cricket is because for the first time ever at the weekend, I went to a cricket game. Uh, it was at Headingley Stadium. Ah, uh, yes. Leeds, where we live. Um, and it was a game of the new type of cricket, the 100, which, if you don't know much about cricket, basically, it's normally very long and drawn out. But this is very quick. It's 100 balls, and you have to score as many as you can in those 100 balls. So it's very fast, very furious. And I have to say, <laughs> it was a great watch, and I would recommend it to anyone. I will give it a go, you know, as someone who doesn't really enjoy cricket that much. I feel like I could get behind it. You know, I I looked into it a bit when I saw it on your uh, sheet of notes and it looked... Hello? Hello? We've lost Bella, but we're going to carry on. (laughs) She's back. She's back. We're going to carry back. on because I'm I'm soldiering through these technical difficulties now. I don't care. So, um, <laughs> no. I think you were saying it looked nice, which it yes, was. Yeah, it did. Um, I would oh, recommend lovely. it, and I think it is going to be very good for the future of the sport. So that's just my little my little recommendation for to get everyone to go and see the hundred hundred cr- cricket, which had some very good players in as well. 
Right, moving on again. Dominic Cummings. He's an um, yes. interesting figure. He, um, you know, he loves the drama. He is in the spotlight at the moment and he is literally one of the only people that can make me speechless. I can hear the frustration in your voice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He has an ego, the man. Um, so last Tuesday he gave an interview to the BBC which was an hour long and it was jam-packed. He basically talks about uh, his trip to Barnard Castle and how he didn't tell the whole story at the time because there was actually security problems at his London home which meant he had to move but he basically had no reason why he didn't tell people at the time. Uh, he said that anyone who was certain Brexit would be a success had a screw loose uh, even though he, <laughs> he was the architect of Brexit and he also said that he had, um, with a group of other people in Downing Street, realised Boris Johnson was an idiot, took advantage of that for their own personal benefit because they knew they could get him to do whatever they want. And when he was in government, just within a few weeks of him becoming Prime Minister and winning the election in 2019, they wanted to overthrow him. I mean, wow. Oh... So, I'm sure you'll get this a lot, Tom, as well, but being a student, um, people of older generations generally think that you're going to be, you know, really left-wing and, and think the right-wing is ridiculous and not agree with anything that they say. And sometimes, you know, the government comes out and they're talking sense and they, uh, you know, say things and I agree with them. But that doesn't happen often. <laughs> this... I can wholeheartedly say this, and mean it, uh, this government is a shambles. It is mad. Now, now, well, don't do government bashing here. Fair. <laughs> you don't, I do. <laughs> well, maybe I, I think, do, but... You know, I think they, between them, they have, you know, good enough educations. They've been educated at some of the best universities in the world. But they just never seem to get it right. And especially hearing what Dominic Cummings has to say about our literal Prime Minister is somewhat terrifying. Here is my only qualm of the whole thing. Yes. So, don't get me wrong. I think Boris Johnson is useless and one of the worst Prime Ministers we've ever had. <laughs> but... Is it not a bit rich for all these people who hated Dominic Cummings more than probably most people in government ever? Like, he was one mm. of the most hated figures ever. Yes. And mm -hmm. he's now, every word he says is taken as God's truth. Yeah, I think... Don't get me wrong, I love bashing the government and I, you know, love making my opinion heard on that when the time is right. But I do also think people hear what they want to hear yeah and whether or not what you're saying is true i think people do like the drama surrounding it like we spoke about the royal family people like the shock value and the shock factor and that's what dominic cummings is giving yeah and like the media is going to eat that up people on facebook are going to love it it's you know it is just it's it all... is all for show really yeah i agree here my like my assessment of it all is probably one that I think a lot of people would share in that 
I think he did it because he wanted to be back in the headlines. It was a publicity stunt. It's worked mm. in a way, but I don't think it changes anything for Boris Johnson. People know he's an idiot. People know these things about him. People... Yeah. What is that noise? <laughs> um, I think my laptop's just started <laughs> trying to Sounds cool like itself a washing down. Machine. It's, it's genuinely just my laptop. You vo- are you launching a rocket? I'll, I'll close some tabs. It's and fine, it way. doesn't I've matter. I've only got one tab open. No, what I, was, what I was trying to say is Boris Johnson, people know what they're getting. People know what they think of him already. They know he's an idiot. They know he says these horrible things about people dying and, and COVID only he's killing made... old people. They know he's, yeah. he makes changes his mind all the time and they don't care. Uh, well, whether you understand that or not, I think that is the reality, don't you? Yeah, I think, so obviously when he was the mayor of London, he had this very childish and friendly persona with his messy hair and he's kind of kept, since being prime minister, he's kept that persona and a lot of people won't take him seriously because of that, but then they'll also see him making a blunder and and messing things up and think, oh, well, that's just Boris, you know, that's what he does. We can't change it at the moment. There's not a general election going on. It's true. So... Um, I think Dominic Cummings probably came out worse for that interview than Boris Johnson just because he seemed so arrogant and to think that he yeah. could overthrow a Prime Minister with his little group of friends and literally openly confess that he manipulated a Prime Minister for his own personal gain. To be honest, what I don't game. have yeah, I don't have a lot of sympathy for Boris. I know he's gone through a really tough time being Prime Minister during the pandemic. But generally, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. But knowing that the staff below him are treating him this way, it you do feel kind of bad for him almost. I mean, I don't feel bad for him. I think it's politics. <laughs> and that's just what happens. Yeah. But it is pretty... Yeah, I get what you mean. Uh, I wouldn't on... want to be in his position. True. True. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, we're going to move on to our final thing, which is also Boris-related. Uh, Dawn Butler, the Labour MP, big fan of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Mm. was in Parliament and called Boris Johnson a liar. Uh, She got chucked out for doing it because that's the protocol the Speaker has to throw you out if you use the word liar and you refuse to retract it because obviously it's a very strong term, especially if you're in a a democratic parliament. But a lot of people got quite angry about this, saying Boris Johnson's proved to have lied on multiple occasions. Why? Why can't you call him a liar? Um, you know, honestly, politics. Hmm. <laughs> Bella it's hasn't a got an answer. One. <laughs> Bella hasn't got an answer. I don't know. I think, I do think that Boris has been, you know, a little bit shady, a little bit sketchy in the past, and yeah, I guess you could argue that he he has lied on on some aspects saying, you know, like, we're going to get through this as a country and we're going to stick together. But then seeing that he's actively said, oh, who can we risk to lose? Like, who don't we need? Yeah. And I, I, I think you could argue that he's a liar a in that sense. Lockdown. I think there's a yeah. lot of stuff about Brexit, the whole 350 million thing. I mean, I'm, we're not getting into that because, frankly, life's too short. But... Um, <laughs> But there's a lot of things like that, police numbers, you know, 
building 40 new hospitals when actually some of yeah. them already built it's there is stuff that you could consider lies there but i have to say can i can i say that i agree with dawn butler but i also agree with the speaker for chucking her out which i think is what kia starmer said as well this week because yeah. i think she's right to call him a liar he has lied i wouldn't mm. say he's a liar on everything i think all politicians extend the truth Oh, he absolutely. Is well known for it and probably does it more than most. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you can't use language like that in a in a parliament and expect to get away with it and not and um, yeah. not suffer consequences. Because if you allow derogatory language like that just to be thrown about, then don't make a big deal of it. Then it just becomes part of your everyday debate, and then all debate in that parliament becomes a slanging match. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm exactly the same. You know, I agree with her and I do think um, he is a liar, as, you know, some would argue most politicians are. But at the same time, you can't expect your actions to not have consequences. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one, as always. Uh, anyway, Bella, thank you so much for coming on, I think. Thank you for having me. You've been great. I'm loving your little... Sally Rooney Appreciation Society you've got going on. Yes, um, I am number one in her fan club. <laughs> Maybe we should have you back on at the end of the summer just to oh. just to discuss all the Sally Rooney news. That should be a segment. I would love that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, if you're going to read any of our recommendations or you've already read them or you've got recommendations of your own, you can email us at what's occurring pod at gmail.com which um would be great for us to um just let us know what you're up to uh also if you've got any opinions on the stories you want us to cover or the big stories of the week uh, do you think the olympics should have gone on whatever it may be email us what's occurring pod at gmail.com instagram dm uh at what's occurring pod or you can follow me on twitter at tom horn tweets uh, I'll be back next week with another co-host, Jay, um, to talk about Carol Walker's book, Lobby Life, which we were talking about earlier. So I'll see you then. <laughs>